All right, open your Bible to Acts this morning, Acts chapter 21. We're going to move at a fairly rapid pace this morning. And let me say just in advance, I, I don't like to sandbag ahead of time, but I'm going to leave some things unsaid just for time's sake. Um, so if you have some questions or some thoughts, then certainly we can discuss those, or you can email me, or you can kick those around in your, in your smaller groups uh, later on this week or on Sunday. Let's start with Acts chapter 21, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Let me just set the stage here just for a moment. Remember, this has all been building. The ministry has all been building through three missionary journeys for Paul to return to the sending home church, which is in Jerusalem. And the James he's referring to is the head of that church. He's the head of this group of leadership and men and elders. And so these two churches now are coming back together. That church that has been blossoming in the Gentile world is now returning to its home base, and all the elders are present. Verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Well, that's a pretty powerful testimony time. One by one, look at what God has done. And if you've been with us through most or all or even part of our series in Acts, you know what some of those things are. The amazing breakthroughs, uh, the amazing gospel response that we've seen again and again in so many places where the church is being birthed and the promise of God is being fulfilled, that the good news will go out into all the world. And it's happening. And he tells them one by one. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and he went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, if that's a bit confusing, that's okay. And I'm going to try to explain it in short order. And this is the part where I'm going to leave a little bit unsaid. And you can do some of that research on your own. But I want you to know the context. And I want you to know the storyline so that this makes sense. One thing that's real important for us to see, this is a passage of Scripture. In fact, this one and the one that follows, this whole section of text is one of those that we would be tempted if we're just reading this on our own, going through our Bible reading plan to go through speedily. We just rush through this. But Luke didn't. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he stayed on this point, in this section, for a significant amount of time. The whole story of Paul's ministry really slows down here. And there's a great deal of importance given at this point, so I don't want us to miss what's happening here. Paul has just arrived in Jerusalem. Less than 12 days are covered in chapters 21, 22, and 23. 12 days in three chapters, while chapters 24 through 26 cover two years. If that gives you an idea of how important these things are. 
Now, when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, these are incredibly turbulent times. This is 15 years from the date of the great Jewish revolt, the Jewish uprising, that would be crushed emphatically by the Romans in AD 66. These are tumultuous times. Um, through a series of poor choices by Roman leadership, poor governors, this, this tension has just been exacerbated between Jews and Gentiles, between Romans and Hebrews. They were fearful of, at the very least, being assimilated into a, a godless pagan culture, and at the most, being annihilated. So their distinctions are lost altogether, their religion is gone, their identity as a people have, have, is lost. And so when Paul steps into this sort of arena, I want you to understand the backdrop that's just swirling all around him. The Jews are very, very conscious of their identity. They're very, very conscious of their culture. They're very, very conscious of fighting, literally fighting, one uprising after another leading up to that war. They're very, very conscious of protecting their sense of self. And then Paul shows up, and it's Pentecost, the high holy day. Well over a million Jews would be in the city of Jerusalem. It is packed with people. And the Jewish church there, under leadership of James and, and those elders, they recognize some tension here. So let me just break this down for a moment. On the one hand, they glorified God for the advance of the gospel. That's good. They, they give God glory. There's, there's no hesitation. And, and Paul is not doing anything to bring attention to himself or praise himself. This is what God has done, and you need to know. In partnership with you, you sent us out. In answer to your prayers, under your support, and in fellowship with you, this is what God has done in all the places where the gospel has gone. And they glorified God for that. That's the good. Now, the bad is this. They also maligned Paul for some misinformation that they had. This is not what we see Paul doing, nor is it ever written historically that Paul did this. So he was maligned for this. Paul was not telling these Jews who came to faith in Christ, who recognized Jesus as Messiah, he was not telling those Jews, now abandon your essential Jewishness. You don't need to go to temple anymore. You don't need to, to uh, participate in any of the feasts anymore. You don't need to carry on any of the, the cultural aspects of your, of your life and your family and your history. You can abandon all of those things and leave them all behind. Paul didn't do that. What Paul did, also with the approval and blessing of the church in Jerusalem, was tell Gentile believers people who come from pagan backgrounds or other religious backgrounds, you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Specifically, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be right with God. That's a, that's a Jewish right. So there's misinformation. And then the ugly. They propose what I would call a dubious solution to this dilemma, to this tension. And in short order, it involves some purity rites and some Nazarite vows. So real quickly, here's what's happening with Paul. They tell Paul, here's what you need to do. You need to undergo this rite of purity because you've been in unclean places with unclean people doing things we don't know about and places we don't know of. And so there is a provision in Judaism for an intensive seven-day purification period. So for these seven days, these are the things that you must do, and then you will be able to re-enter Jewish religious society. You'll be able to re-enter temple. You'll be able to re-engage in Jewish worship with us. But also, as a statement of your goodwill and your support of all things Jewish and Judaism, we want you to sponsor these four men who have taken a Nazarite vow. Now, Paul himself had been a Nazarite. So he says, in a statement of your support of them, you do what they're going to do, okay? You're going to cut your hair, 
and you're going to pay for the whole thing, which would be very expensive for them. You're going to be their sponsor. You're going to be their endorser. And that way, this throng of Jews everywhere will receive you because they'll say, oh, Paul is not our enemy. Paul is not selling us out. Paul is not turning his back on his own culture and people. Paul, in fact, is one of us. And so they said, I want you to do all of these things for us. Now, keep in mind, when it came to Paul and James, the Gentile church and the Jewish church, not Judaism, make sure you understand what I'm saying. These are converted Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and now these converted Gentile believers for whom Paul was exerting leadership, they had fundamental agreement on the things that mattered. They agreed on the gospel. They agreed on what saves a person, what makes a person right with God. It's not the law. It's not participation in, in Jewish acts. It's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They agreed on that. What they didn't agree on was discipleship for Jewish believers. Because James in the early church, the Jewish church, believed that those Jewish converts needed to re remain essentially Jewish. It doesn't mean just the moral law. They agreed on the moral law. Paul wrote frequently in his letters and epistles about the need to live a moral life, exemplary of Christ. They agreed on the moral law. What they didn't agree on were these cultural laws, these acts of worship and things that identified you as a Jew particularly. And so there's some disagreement there. Their fundamental disagreement, however, was this. Do we still act and live and worship primarily functionally as Jews who now have Christ or not? Or as I put in your notes, should Jewish believers be expected or required to continue to observe Jewish cultural practices? Now we know what Paul did. We know Paul no longer saw those as necessary for him. We know that sometimes he did engage and sometimes he didn't. They were no longer essential to his identity. He recognized, better than anyone, I think, what all of those things pointed towards, that they were all shadows of a greater substance fulfilled in Christ. Why practice the shadow when I have the substance? Why practice the thing that points to something when I have the thing that it points to? I have the reality now. And so Paul would consider those, and this is your word of the week, he would consider much of what they did, culturally, religiously, superfluous. Not sinful, but superfluous. Not necessary, not essential for us. And so, Paul, trying to be a, a good citizen, Paul trying to work in faithful accord with the Jewish church, Paul trying to be conciliatory, Paul even being submissive to the will of the Jewish church and their elders, which is something I want you to see here. I want you to see that each of these churches was not functioning just autonomously or independently. They were functioning together, cohesively. Paul decides, okay, I'll do it. That's what you want me to do. I'll go through the seven-day period of purification. I'll sponsor these four men in their Nazarite vows. And hopefully that will usher me back into the good graces of the Jewish church here who thinks poorly of me in this regard, at least this regard. Look at the result, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now make sure you understand who's doing what here. Okay, these are not Jewish believers from Asia. These are Jews from Asia who have come in now for Pentecost. Paul is a notorious figure known to Jews and Gentiles alike. When they see Paul in the temple, they recoil at the idea. Why? They assume him to be unclean at best, antagonistic towards Judaism, their faith, their practices, the temple itself at worst. And so their response is immediate, it's visceral, they lay hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! 
And just imagine the scene. Imagine a throng of people on a relatively small space, over a million strong, and this contingency of people from Asia grab hold of him, and then they try to get everyone else involved. Help, this is the man who's teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he'd done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. All right. Let's break this down for a moment and look at the point. Two accusations they made very quickly. In their own words, the words of the text, this is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere, and catch these three things, this is their challenge, he's teaching everyone everywhere against the people, so against who we are as a people, against the law, against Moses and what we teach and believe, and against this place, against the temple. Now, just know if you're, if you're a note-taker and you're going to do some research on your own later, these are false accusations, ultimately. We know Paul's heart for the Jews. We know this, right? We know what Paul said in Romans about the Jews. That if Paul could make this grand exchange with God, though it's impossible, the heart of Paul would be this, I would choose to be accursed for their sake if it would mean them being saved. You can't read through the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, without seeing the beating heart of Paul for his own people, for his own nation, and what he would endure for them. So that's unquestioned, and I hope you've seen that through Acts. What Paul would endure for the sake of his own people is unquestionable, undeniable. These are false accusations. He never spoke against the Jewish people. He loved them and adored them. He never spoke against the law. He saw the law for what it was. He saw the law as a caretaker, a space holder, pointing people to the ultimate fulfillment of the law for them and for God, Jesus Jesus, who keeps all the law for our sake so that we can be made righteous in him. Paul understood the law. And the place, the temple, no, he's there. He's back at Pentecost to be in that place. And we also know that his MO in city to city was to always go to places of worship first. He'd always start in the synagogues and gather with the people and try to teach them there. That's accusation number one. It's false. Number two, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Another false accusation. And you see it in the text. They accused him of doing this simply because they put two and two together and came up with 18, and they saw Paul with Trophimus in the city, so they just said, well, he must be bringing that guy into the temple with him. What they're really accusing him of is this. Paul is blurring all the lines between pagan and Jewish, Jewish and Gentile. He, he's destroying our very distinctiveness. He's destroying the very heart of the temple that he would drag some pagan Gentile or Gentile at all into a place where he is not allowed to go. Because you remember, according to the Jewish law, they could only be in that court of the Gentiles, that outermost ring of the 
temple area. So they're accusing him of something that's just not true, but the accusation goes to the heart of something. Paul doesn't care about this temple anymore. He doesn't care about Jewish faith or tradition anymore. He doesn't care about Moses anymore. He doesn't care about you anymore. Because Paul has turned his attention to the Gentiles. And one result from their two accusations is this. They were seeking to kill him. We often talk about in conversation questions you want to ask when you get to heaven. People you want to have a conversation with and things you'd like to know. I doubt we'll have any of those questions on our minds when we get there. I think our minds will be on bigger and better things. But if you ever do sit down with the Apostle Paul in heaven, I'd like to know history of what he endured for the gospel. How many times was this man beaten nearly to death simply to be faithful? And if you remember the context, for those of you who were here last week or the week before, you'll remember us talking about this. Paul knew full well what awaited him when he went into Jerusalem. The church had given a prophecy telling him what awaited him when he got to Jerusalem. They interpreted that prophecy wrongly, saying, well, don't go. This is what's going to happen. You shouldn't go. But Paul said this, in essence, I'm willing to do more than just be arrested there. I'm willing to die there if necessary. This is what Paul had said, going into Jerusalem doesn't frighten me because I've already died. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul wrote to the Galatians. Therefore, I no longer live. But the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul could walk into a place like Jerusalem saying, death doesn't scare me. I died to all that stuff a long time ago. I only live to Christ and whatever he wants from me. And so Paul endures this. Now there's a glaring contrast. I won't spend too much time on this. It's not a critical point, but it's just something I want you to see. There's a glaring contrast in this, in this text which shows a pattern that we've seen throughout the book of Acts. And that is Jewish opposition juxtaposed against Roman support. It's really fascinating. You've got Roman justice taking place on the one hand and Jewish injustice again and again. Over and over we see what the Jews were doing to suppress the gospel. In chapter 4, the Sanhedrin imprisons Peter and John and then other apostles and forbids them with threats to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. In chapter 7, Stephen is martyred. In chapter 8, the persecution of the church begins. In chapter 9, we're introduced to the grand persecutor, Saul of Tarsus. Now we see in chapter 21, the crowd is trying to lynch Paul, who's now the apostle. Chapter 22, they're going to hysterically demand his death. In chapter 23, we're going to see four men, over 40 men take a secret oath to kill him. This is a progression. The end of verse 30 says something I think is very interesting. I think it's more than just a physical description of events. I think it's a spiritual description of results. In verse 30 reads, and at once the gates were shut. Almost symbolic. The rejection of the gospel seems so final there. So heartbreaking to Paul, but so, so final. And this is not something that Luke would take pleasure in. He's not writing this to disparage the Jews. This is heartbreaking reality for him. But it does validate the call of God on Paul's life and Paul's own commitment to go to the Gentiles. The gate is shut. They've shut off the gospel. On the other hand, we see Luke presenting fairly consistently the Romans as friends of the gospel. The first convert, first Gentile convert, was a Roman centurion named Cornelius. The first convert of Paul's missionary journeys was the Roman proconsul of Cyprus. Wherever they had the opportunity, the Roman authorities seemed to defend 
Paul and the missionary efforts. In Philippi, the magistrates apologized to Paul and Silas for having beaten and imprisoned them and then physically escorted them out of there. In Corinth, the proconsul refused to even listen to Jewish accusations and dismissed the case against Paul. In Ephesus, when the great riot rose up against Paul, the town clerk declared the Christian leaders and Paul innocent, rebuked the crowd and sent them all home. And then now in Jerusalem, this military tribune, Claudius Lysias, protects him two different times, puts him into protective custody, if you will. Why did he take him away in chains and arrest him? Not against Paul, but for Paul, to protect him from the mob. And that brings us to one striking similarity. What did they say about Paul at the end? Who does that remind you of? That's what Luke is painting a picture of. He's painting a picture of the parallels of Jesus, the Messiah, and Paul, his foremost spokesperson among the Gentiles. Away with him! It's much like, almost quoted verbatim, of what they said when they selected Jesus for death instead of Barabbas, the career criminal. Away with him! And as we'll see through the remainder of Acts in the coming chapters, three different times, Paul is put forth on trial three different times the Romans announce him not guilty. Three different times the Jews want him dead. Three times he's declared not guilty. Just like Jesus, three times. Well, there are four important lessons here, and this is the heart of things. I want to go through them quickly, but I want you to get these in a little bit of time we have. Four important lessons here. First one is this. When they spoke of Paul, remember what they said was not, not true. Paul had never instructed converted Jews to abandon their culture or their cultural practices, the observation of their feasts, the observation of their worship practices. He never did that. Now, for Gentiles who had no experience in Judaism, he didn't impose Judaism on them. And the predominant work we have in that regard is is Galatians. It's Jesus plus nothing, because anything added to Jesus doesn't just take away from the gospel. It changes the gospel. Christ and Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone are we saved. What they said about him was not true, but discord that they sowed. The discord via slander is what we're talking about here. Discord via slander discredits individuals. They discredited Paul here. That's not what his missionary work had been about. On the one hand, they recognized the great things that God had done, but uh, Paul, we have an issue with this. It discredited him in his heart. It diminished the church. It weakened the church. I, I put in your, your notes there, this, the context is Pentecost and gathering of the Jews, but a, a bifurcated church that's now split into two streams, Jewish and Christian, but still one church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And now it's diminishing that. It's diminishing the unity of that church. And it damages the gospel. What happened here was damaging to the gospel. I think a lot of damage to the gospel, diminishing of the church, and discrediting of individuals still happens among believers today. Semi-truths told, inferences made, false assumptions spoken like they were true statements, attacks and slander that discredits individuals, diminishes the church, and damages the gospel. And I suppose that anyone, and though I don't dare compare myself to the Apostle Paul, but anyone who does even a little portion of what he did, stands up and teaches, proclaims, is going to be subject to that. And certainly I have been. My discord and slander 
It's no wonder that Paul would write some words like this so emphatic. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, eager to do so. That's active, that's not passive. That doesn't leave room for someone who says, well, I've never said anything negative, I've never done anything wrong. No, this requires activity. Eager to maintain unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. Why? Verse 4 is a great theological statement. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you think Paul was trying to make an emphatic point? In Christ, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, black and white, we are one in Christ. Be eager to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. You have more in common with another believer than you have with any other person, no matter how much they are like you, if they're not believers. We have more in common in Christ. When we slander one another, we sow discord. We do harm to the very gospel that we say we believe in. Number two, at the same time, while we're eager to maintain the unity, so think of these sort of as pillars in your mind. Here's a Christian pillar. I must, as a Christian, understand the unity I have in the faith with other believers. This is what binds us together. This is who I'm going to share eternity with. This is what puts us in the same family eternally with the same Father, God. Unity, i got to be eager to do that. That's one pillar. The second pillar, though, is this. We must never sacrifice gospel truth for unity. And I put in those, in that uh, quote, quotation marks, unity, a, a superficial sort of unity, a unity that says uh, we'll overlook legitimate differences, we'll overlook points of real disagreement, we'll overlook things that separate us. No, you never sacrifice gospel truth for unity. Too many Christians are doing that, believing in that first pillar, but misapplying it, unity at all costs. Well, that cost should never include the sacrifice of truth, particularly gospel truth, because everything rises or falls on, on the gospel itself. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you. All right, so that's the appeal to unity. We need to agree. There shouldn't be divisions among us, but that you be united. In what? Be united in the same mind and in the same judgment that we understand rightly, that we're discerning correctly, that we're judging truth and error consistently, that we stand on what's real and true. I want us to be unified, but I want us to be unified in, in sane and right judgment and truth. 2 Corinthians 11.4 If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed? Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. This was an indictment against the church in Corinth. He says people come along and they're presenting Jesus, and that's not the biblical Jesus. The name is the same, and some aspects of the storyline are the same. But the work is not the same. The position is not the same. The demands are not the same. It's not the same Jesus, and he says, here's your problem. People come to be presenting a different message, a different gospel, a different spirit, and you accept it readily enough. You're, you're not discerning. 
and you're building unity on sand that won't last. Steve and I were talking this morning before the service. He asked me, he says, have you heard of the uh, He Gets Us campaign? How many of you heard of the He Gets Us campaign? If you haven't, you will. It's a $100 million campaign. It's all being ratcheted up to lead up to a big Super Bowl presentation. According to the He Gets Us campaign, this is a description. It's a $100 million effort to redeem Jesus' brand from the damage done by his followers, especially those who say one thing and do another. The founder of the movement said he wanted to start a movement of people who want to tell a better story about Jesus. Um, this was an article sympathetic to the He Gets Us movement that was posted this past week. Launched earlier this year, ads featuring black and white online videos about Jesus as a rebel, an activist, a host at a dinner party, etc., have been viewed more than 300 million times, according to organizers. Billboards with messages like, Jesus let his hair down too, and this one, which appears in the center of Las Vegas on the Strip, Jesus went all in too, have been posted in major markets, New York City, Vegas, etc., Again, the founder says, our goal is to give voice to the pent-up energy of like-minded Jesus followers, those who are in the pews and the ones who aren't, who are ready to reclaim the name of Jesus from those who abuse it to judge, harm, and divide people. Well, on the surface, that may sound okay. It may even resonate with some of us. But when you see what sort of Jesus are they describing, that's where the real problems begin to emerge. Now, our own Southern Baptist Convention became embroiled in a minor controversy over this just this past week when it came to light that our North American Mission Board was one of several denominational sponsors of the He Gets Us movement. Georgia Pastor Mike Stone tweeted this last week. He said, Today the president of the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention pushed evangelistic cooperation with the He Gets Us campaign, a group that suggests that the sinlessness of Jesus is debatable, claims that Jesus had moments of insufficiency, and that Christ had worry and anxiety about the cross. These people should be recipients of evangelism, not evangelistic cooperation. If we had even one-tenth as much discernment as we had pragmatism, we'd know this. This is from the He Gets Us website in one of the questions and their answers. Some believe Jesus had a perfect life. For others, that's a stretch. Either way, as we searched for themes to share, it became apparent to us that Jesus set a high bar for himself and others. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. If you remove the sinless perfection of Jesus from the Bible, you are lost in your trespasses and sins, and there is no hope for you. If Christ has sinned, one or a million times, his death on the cross was for his sins and not for yours and mine. That he is a sacrificial atoning work of God for our sake, for our sins, is critical to the gospel. It's not tangent to the gospel. Without it, the gospel crumbles. It falls apart. This was another Q&A on their website. Is this a campaign to get me to go to church? No. He gets us simply invites us all to consider the story of a man who created a radical love movement that continues to impact the world thousands of years later. Many churches focus on Jesus' experiences, but you don't have to go to church or even believe in Christianity to find value in them. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or believe in another faith, a spiritual explorer, or not religious or spiritual anyway, we invite you to hear about Jesus and be inspired by his example. Now, if the point, if the motivation is to stir people up to genuine gospel conversations, then I guess that was a good motivation. But the answers they're giving to people who actually write them questions are treacherous. They're, they're tragic. Well, as many of these things were uncovered, I won't go into detail for time's sake, Thankfully, our North American Mission Board responded, though not in a way that I, I find fully satisfactory. It seems like a, a pragmatic response, not a theological one. But our North American Mission Board wrote this statement. At North American Mission Board, it's all about the gospel. 
NAM's goal is to equip churches with the necessary resources to reach North America with the gospel, to love those who do not know him and lead them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We concur. Given the diverse population of our continent, we're always looking for ways to reach every person in their unique context with relevant resources that are true to the gospel. The He Gets This campaign invited NAM to, to involve Southern Baptist churches, along with several other denominations, some which we would not partner with, interested in engaging people who have more questions who would like to connect with the local church. As this involved no NAM funding, I saw this as an opportunity to connect more people to our churches who have questions about Jesus. Knowing these ads will see, be seen by millions of people, we hope to help Southern Baptists engage the opportunity from the conversations these ads will create. I think you don't need those ads. I think what you heard from Steve this morning is a strategy all of us can employ. The people we know, where we go, what we, what we don't need is more opportunity. What we need is more boldness. Less, it's not more opportunity, it's more obedience. He goes on to say, however, upon further consideration, the effort is too broad for us to directly connect with the campaign. In my desire to help our churches, I did less diligence than I should have. That's on me, and I apologize. Although NAM will not be involved, we pray that, our, that conversations begun by this campaign will lead to gospel-centered conversations and cause many to, to, many to seek to learn more about Jesus. That was a letter from Kevin Ezell. It's more than too broad. It's another gospel. And that's why you have emphatic statements like this in the scriptures. Paul wrote to the Galatians this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Steve and I were talking this morning and said it's totally a man-centered, pragmatic campaign. It just appeals to men. He gets us. No, he, he absolutely gets He gets every part of us, and that's why he had to die for us. Because of our sin. But if we seek the approval of man, those are the sort of compromises we'll make. Just like that. Now, I will say this. Point number three, gospel unity, true gospel unity, does require us to sometimes sacrifice our own preferences and freedoms. Not to sacrifice gospel truth. Not to sacrifice those things upon which the gospel is built necessarily or it would crumble without. But some of our own preferences and freedoms. For instance, when we go to plant a church in a foreign country and culture, unlike our own, it's not necessary for us to impose on them all of our preferences, our cultural preferences. How we sing or what we sing how we organize our services or our schedules or, or how we build our teams. There are certain things that are biblical, things like pastors, elders, things like deacons. Those are biblical concepts that transcend time and place. But other things that are not. And we have to be very, very careful. And this is something I, I could get on a soapbox, but 1119 I won't for your sake. We're terrible at, folks. Elevating personal preferences above things that really, really matter. Most of the things I... I spend time dealing with that are, that are negative in church life are on the level of personal preferences and freedoms. You can or you can't. The Bible doesn't mandate, dictate, doesn't demand or require or deny, but it's personal preferences. Listen to what Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20, he said, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Yeah, he did seven days of purification in this context using whatever little money he had to sponsor four men 
and all the sacrifices involved in that, the purchase of those sacrifices, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. And again, that doesn't mean the moral law. That doesn't mean righteousness. It means cultural law, temple law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. That's what he did in this context. To those who are weak, he became weak. Okay, I'll do this for your sake. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with him in its blessing. I will never compromise this, this gospel. If I need to participate in these Jewish events, I'll do them for the sake of those Jews that I care for and want to see saved. When I'm in Antioch or Ephesus or Colossae, or Rome, I will not. That brings to the fourth and final point, and this one's critical. And I'll leave you with this one. The offense of the gospel cannot be removed. You and I can labor hard at not being offensive people, argumentative people, difficult people, unloving, uncaring, unsympathetic people. Those are separate issues altogether. I guess my primary issue with what I see in this He Gets This movement is it's another failed attempt to remove the offensiveness of the gospel. Again, we were talking this morning about you know, engaging people that are far from God. That eventually, if they ask the right questions long enough, one of two things is going to happen. They're either A, going to get offended by your answers, or B, their hearts are going to begin to change, and God's Spirit is going to work on them, and they're going to repent and believe. Offense or belief. Those are only two outcomes. Push far enough, it's offense or belief. And you can't remove those offenses in order to hopefully create belief. Again, I refer you to Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and following. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. If people in rational thinking, human wisdom, groupthink, common opinion didn't discover God, here's how they'll understand Him. Through what we preach, the folly of what we preach. For Jews demand signs. You remember that in Jesus' ministry? They all asked for a sign, but yet the signs never changed their hearts. No one was ever saved as a result of those. The Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Why is Christ crucified a stumbling block? Well, you might say, well, that's because a Jewish person believed anyone, as the Scripture says, anyone who is placed on a tree is accursed. So just the idea that a Messiah could be subject to the brutality of man is foreign to us. Well, that's part of it. But understand, the real offense of the cross is this. Why was Jesus crucified? Not that he was, but why he was. That's what's offensive. The offense of the cross is Jesus was crucified. Jesus was treated as the worst of the worst, the most heinous of the heinous, for your sake and for mine. The offense of the cross is he took my sin for me, my sin that deserved death. There's the offense. What do you mean my sin deserves death? 
I'm a good person. I'm better than this person. I try to do the right thing. The offense of the cross says God judges sin. God is holy. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles are Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is taking a stand for the gospel. He always does. He always has. Not just to be hard or be divisive. Not to just try to prove some theological point. Not even for the purity of the church, but for the sake of the gospel. Because to diminish the gospel, to take away from what it requires of us, to not teach fully what Jesus says to us, what Jesus expects from us, it destroys it all. And no one is saved by that kind of compromise. No one is saved by that sort of human appeal. So we start a campaign. He gets us. and We try to make Jesus more palatable to the masses. No matter what your lifestyle is, no matter if you choose to be a follower or not, no matter if you choose to identify with his people and become part of a church community or not, there are good things you can learn from him. This is the same old liberalism. This is the same old neo Christianity that's been around for, oh, forever. We have to stand on the gospel out of love. Paul's stance for the gospel is out of love. I love God too much to deny him his glory. And I love you too much to allow you to march into eternity not knowing the truth. And if that costs me, and I speak on behalf of Apostle Paul, if that costs me, I'll pay everything for that cost. I'll pay everything to be true to my king, and honest to you. I'm going to ask you if you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning as we pray together. I know the hour is late. Stay with me just for a second. If you're not a believer yet, if you're not a follower of Christ yet, listen, I want to affirm one part of that statement. Does God get you? Does Christ get you? Absolutely. He became flesh for our sake. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to face every temptation you've ever faced. And yet he faced all those temptations and never sinned. He did that for our sake. He fought sin and won for our sake so that he would be a suitable sacrifice to the Father. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pictures and allegories and Images of the gospel that God is holy and just, and yet he loves sinful people. So what will he do? How do you combine those two things? How do you possibly reconcile great holiness, perfect justice, and unimaginable love and mercy? The only way you can reconcile those two things is to understand the cross. God demonstrated his love for me, and that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. God in his holiness and justice made his own son a perfect payment for our sin. And sin was atoned for, paid for through him for all who have faith in him. And God did this because he loved us and did not want to destroy us, but wanted to save us. The ultimate question for us is not, does Jesus get us, but do you get Jesus? Do you get him? Do you get what he's done? Do you get what he offers? He offers you forgiveness of sin and a new life entirely.
He invites you to be rescued from a world of, of sin and darkness, as he describes it, to a kingdom of light and life, to his kingdom. He, he invites you to go from being his enemy to being his child, to being part of his family. And the scandal of it all is there's nothing you can do to deserve that or earn it, but he'll give it to you as a gift if you'll but receive it. That's his grace. Christian, I hope you'll be emboldened to make him known. Not through a campaign or program, but through the rhythms of your daily life. Pray that God would do that through me, through you. God, I pray that you'd be glorified today. Glorified that some would choose you by faith in response to your choosing of them. Father, they place their hope and trust in what you've done for them through Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, who conquered sin and death and was raised to life three days later, ascended to you, where now he awaits that perfect timing to come and return for us. We'll see him again. Father, we long for that. Lord, may we be good ambassadors. Make your appeal through us, Father. We're ready. We're ready for you to make your appeal through us. Pray we be faithful to it. We pray this in Jesus' name.